Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's The Line podcast. We are recording this on February 9th, 2024. Today, Matt Gurney and Jen Gerson, myself, are going to discuss some fascinating topics, including Tucker Carlson in Russia interviewing Putin. Is this our generation's not Frost versus Nixon? No. But we are going to discuss Pierre Polyev, what he's doing with Ukraine and the free trade agreement, puberty blockers and all the such. We'll touch on what's going on there on Alberta, but only briefly. And then we're going to move on to BCE mass media layoffs. Matt and I are going to disagree on that point. And then he's going to take it and talk all about Belleville and the rotting of Canadian faith in its institutions. Well, that's a really depressing intro, Jen, but it's great to have you here for this, the latest episode of The Line Podcast. I, I I couldn't get through the Tucker interview. I'm just admitting that right up front, the uh, Tucker and um, Putin interview. I watched probably the first 10 minutes. And then I remembered, I don't remember when this was, maybe about a year ago where Putin had some big speech in Moscow and there were a bunch of terrified people sitting in Kremlin seating. And he just went on and on and on and on and on for hours. That was not an interview between Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin. That was Vladimir Putin delivering a speech to the audience of Tucker Carlson. There's there's definitely an element of uh, old man rambles at the sky going on there with Putin right now. But nothing and that I do he wanna, said was new. Nothing that he said was new. So there's a couple things here. One is the journalistic impulse. There were a lot of journalists in our feeds the last few days horrified that Tucker Carlson would be going off and giving this, you know, puffball interview to Vladimir Putin. Of course, this demonstrated that Tucker Carlson is a propagandistic element for Russia and all the rest. And like, yeah, (laughs) he kind of is. Tucker Carlson is not critical or well-informed on what's happening on Ukraine and Russia. He has a long history of engaging in just absolutely fact-free conspiracy theories, for example, that Russia invaded uh, Ukraine because of U.S.-funded biolabs, something that there was absolutely no evidence to demonstrate proof for. Um, So, like, he's got a long history of this. And, of course, I mean, Putin wouldn't have selected Tucker for for this interview, unless he knew that he was going to be able to essentially push Tucker around and get what he wanted out of it. That said, what did Putin actually get out of this is a real question as well, because by the sounds of it, this was like Putin going on for about 45 minutes about his version about Russian history, none of which will come across as surprising or new to anybody who's been particularly watching this file. We've heard it all before. Um, And also the, the little shots that Putin took at Tucker like there was a weird little statement about um, how he said, well, Tucker, you were trying to, you tried to get into the, to the CIA kind of thing, indicating like I have deep and in-depth sources within American um, intelligence. Uh, I know your backstory. I know your history. There was an element of like threat there as well that Tucker just didn't seem to know how to handle. Um, and also Tucker couldn't get a, get a question in. He had no, he had very few opportunities to get a question in. Um, and he just wasn't adept at handling an operator who was much better at this than he was. And that was really obvious to me. Um, so all that aside, you know, I would say this, there were a lot of people saying, you know, Russian journalists have been jailed for trying to do journalism in Russia. And here you get Tucker Carlson getting the sweetie pie treatment at the Ritz. And I think that that sort of visceral emotion is valid. But that being said, we all know that there's something called access journalists and access journalism, where people who are sympathetic to a person in power get access 
to information and material. That information finds its way into the public space and wouldn't otherwise have any avenue for doing so. And we all know that who the access journalists are, and we read between the lines of what's actually fed to them. And like, that is, how should I say this? It's not a great thing to be an access journalist by any stretch, but I do think that, that that's a service that's being provided. That's information that's coming into the public sphere that wouldn't otherwise come into the public sphere. And can, can we know that in the long run that that interview with Putin was totally invalid or, or how to say this, had no value to anyone listening to it critically? I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I'm fine with him actually doing the interview if for no other reason that, yes, I'm aware it's going to be a propagandistic interview, but there might be some nuggets of information that a really um, credible intelligence analyst might be able to glean from it. You might be able to glean a sense of a state of mind, a way of looking at the world that might have some value to you. So I don't necessarily think it's wrong for him to do that kind of an interview so long as we can acknowledge that he's also a giant Goomba and uh, not necessarily take everything that happens in that interview at face value. Yeah, I, I think that that all sounds uh, fair to me. I, I think I agree with you on the on the main point. I have no objection to him having done the interview. Um, my I, to me, I mean, it's it's a confirmation exercise. It didn't tell me anything about either Tucker or Putin that I didn't already know. Yeah. So, OK. Yep. All right. Thanks. Um, you know, and there will be criminologists, literally, and intelligence experts and, and whatnot who will review it and and glean things from it. And that's great. You, you asked an interesting question, though, where you said, what did um, what did uh, Putin get from it? Putin used that opportunity strategically, I think, to send a message to the fringe of the Western conservative base, uh, how fringy they are, I guess, maybe up to. Uh, debate, he spoke directly to them and he was sending them um, a a narrative that, you know, most of us are going to roll our eyes at, but some percentage of the Western population is going to lap up. Now, I don't know if it matters. I don't know if it leaves them more energized or more organized, but I think that's what he was doing. And as for for Carlson, I don't really know what he was doing. I mean, I think in the literal face of it, it's you know, it's an it's a notoriety play, it's an attention play, and you know, it's he's independent now, right? He's not on Fox anymore, so these things have their own literal value. But I don't know if he came out of that feeling like a winner because you know, I think Putin mocked him, and I don't think oh, Tucker's used to being mocked repeatedly, yeah, completely. The contempt that Putin demonstrated for Tucker was extremely uh, palpable. Let's put it yeah. that way, and. You know, and also the other thing I say is, yeah, yeah. So Putin was trying to speak to a particular base, but what I think was interesting is that Tucker's got actually a better bead on that base than Putin was. But Putin dem- demonstrated that he lacked the humility to actually let Tucker take the lead on some of that stuff. Like there was a couple of points where Tucker was trying to feed him a softball question about, you know, you were you were. I think I think I, I read this um, summary of this of this point. So please forgive me if I'm not quite getting it right, but. Um, there was an element of, well, you know, you're a peaceful people and you, you, you know, you, you aren't out for war kind of thing. And, and Putin was like, yeah, no, screw that. <laughs> we, we invaded Ukraine. Like, you know, so um, if anything, I'm not sure that the interview served either men any benefit in the long run, aside from the fact that it, there was some intrinsic benefit to them for both for having done it in the first place. I'm curious. Um, I'm I'm honestly curious, and I don't know because I don't understand this mindset. But if you are uh, kind of more on the fringe of the the Western uh, right wing, and you think Vladimir Putin was totally justified, you 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 like him because he's anti woke, and you think that you know the, the rest of us are all woke pussies and whatnot, 
And then Putin goes out there with your hero, Tucker Carlson, the the, the only man speaking the truth. And God knows we've been hearing from those folks for the last two weeks. Yeah. If Putin goes out and mocks Carlson in front of those people, who do those people side with? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. And if you were, I, and if you were I don't, one of these no. people, uh, reply to us in the comment section. Who, who are you? Who team are you on? Team Putin or Team Carlson? The the easiest path out of cognitive dissonance is to simply deny that there was any such mockery and to insist that we are uh, Trudeau's bought and paid for libtard morons fair. who are inve inventing controversy where none exists. So moving okay. on. Moving um, on. Let's talk about Pierre Polyev. Let's. Uh, an interesting week for Pierre Polyev. And you had a universally popular tweet. Um, as, I, as I'm known for. I'm just, uh, I, I make those universally popular tweets. Tell, so they were just, they were just, yeah, just tell me, about... tell me in the listeners what you actually said. Okay. Well, let me just actually pull up my tweet and then I will do exactly that. And um, I will tell everyone as well. I, I looked at the reaction to it and I had to roll my eyes because I understood the point you were making and a lot of people didn't. Yes, exactly. Uh, so basically, I think that people forget that the original, um, so, uh, okay, okay, so this was something, it was a response to a Globe column when I was like, Pierre Polyev's carbon tax opposition is embarrassing as per party on Ukraine. By the way, I agree with that opinion. I agree with that position. Who wrote that column? Let me pull it up here. So it wasn't one of your columns. Someone no, else this wasn't, this wasn't one of my columns. This was, um, here, it's just coming up. Give me half a second. My computer's very slow. We're just going to probably clip this. Sorry. So somebody needs a new computer. Oh, it was a John Ibsen. Sorry, that's right. It was a John Ibsen column. Ibsen, okay. okay. So, so John okay. Ibsen and writes a column agree. that says, Pierre Polyev's carbon tax opposition is embarrassing his party on Ukraine, mm -hmm. which by the way, I broadly agree with what Ibsen says. Ibsen's a pretty down the line kind of columnist. Mm -hmm. As an addition to that, I said, my suspicion, the conservatives kind of accidentally voted against the trade deal as part of a broader obstructionist gambit without thinking the implications of the Ukraine portion of the game through. And now they're just doubling down and tripling down on the error because Pierre is pathologically incapable of walking anything back. Better to spin the reasoning of the original mistake and continue on to, than to cop to it. Um, that doesn't mean that he's not appealing to a pro-Putin element within the PC base. And yes, people have pointed out to me, um, there's been some some polling data to show that there's a significant portion of the CPC base that is not, if not necessarily pro-Putin, is more skeptical toward the, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. And I think there are a lot of reasons going into that. Um, but I think that also has to be balanced against the fact that there's a significant Af um, Ukrainian and Eastern European diaspora within that very same base. So it's not like the base is united on this particular issue. There's significant um, disagreement within it. And I think that Pierre is now left to try and find a compromise position that pleases both of them, and he'll probably fail. But anyway, what that means to me is that Pierre Polyev's pride is about 80% of what's happening here. He just won't take the L. He keeps on pushing this through and slicing it up until it looks like something like a win. And I think that there's also another point that probably has been forgotten about this. And that is when the conservatives first voted um, against the Ukraine trade deal, this was part of their, remember, their stop MPs from going home from Christmas yep. Yeah, they voted against everything. They were voting against absolutely everything because they were in this like weird obstructionist game where they're just going to pin it to the pin it to the MPs for the little guy. And my suspicion is that they didn't really think through the optics of voting against the Ukrainian trade deal in the first place. They were just trying to vote against everything because they were just being obstructionist pricks. And or, then when it came, 
Yeah, or they the, overestimated how easily they'd be able to go, well, we were voting in a block against everything. Like they didn't have the thought of they didn't they just didn't they'll get think nickel and dime on every one of those votes. That's they right. were thinking in terms of a block and they they're were gonna like, get let's, killed let's, on the let's, individual. Yeah, let's break Christmas for the liberals. That was the logic at that particular moment. Which was stupid. And it totally. Um, and then what happened is when the liberals was like, oh, you can you conservatives have voted against the Ukrainian trade deal, they went uh uh yeah because there's a carbon tax clause in it and basically what they've been doing every time this comes up ever since then is they've been doubling down on this weird carbon tax logic while sticking to the original voting against the trade bill which doesn't make any sense so yes they're embarrassing themselves it's stupid they should just take the l and move on but i think that pierre can't i think he can't take the l now, what was interesting to me was that there are a lot of people who didn't understand that critique. There were a lot of people who thought that this was a defense of Polyev yeah. because they're sort of wrapped up in their own partisan craziness and they look at me as a black hat and I'm I'm here to defend the the the, the conservatives. Which I was saw... interesting, which was super interesting because I think that anyone who actually read what I read and understood it understood that it was exactly the opposite. It was actually yeah. a critique of Pierre and it was a critique of their entire fuck up to date. Cause this is what this has been. It's been an, it's been a fuck up that's taken them off message and off narrative. It's pissed off aspects of their own base. Please some aspects of their other base for a highly symbolic nonsense vote that was originally caught up in a stupid obstructionist gambit. It was, it's, it's rabbits, all it's turtles all the way down on this shit. Um, but it's been fascinating to watch how many, how many liberals this one pissed off because it didn't totally, it was a critique that didn't fo totally fall in their line of these people are just Putin puppet puppets. They You're just, they on. just, they just want to believe that the conservative party is being, is, is, is pro Putin hand mouthpieces because that also aligns with what they really believe happened in, in the Trump situation. And it's America what they're convinced would never is happening here now. Yeah, yeah. There's only reason, the only reason why Pierre is actually succeeding, the only reason why Trump actually succeeded is nothing to do with our failures. It's all just Putin, 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 his, his disinformation. And that's, that's what it's all doing. That's what it's, be, what it's beating into. I'm suggesting is, yes, it's a fuck up and it's an error, but it's a much more interesting fuck up and a much more interesting error that tells us a lot more about Pierre Polyev's personal failures and personal psychology and what we can expect from him in government. Do you, do you still have the tweet in front of you? Oh, I can pull it up if you like. Just read it again, and then I'm okay. going to then I'm going to hold forth. Okay, great. Here's my tweet. My suspicion: the conservatives, the, con the conservatives, kind of accidentally voted against the trade deal as part of a broader obstructionist gambit without thinking the implications of the Ukraine portion of the game through. And now they're just doubling and tripling down on the error because Pierre is pathologically in sorry incapable. I said capable. That was an error. Incapable of walking anything back. Better to spin the reasoning of the original mistake than continue on and and continue on than to cop to it. Is there a My, section of the CPC base that is pro-Putin? Yes, sure. But there's also a very vocal section of the CPC base that is Ukrainian diaspora, and they're pissed about this, which makes me think that the PP's pride is about 80% of what's happening here. He won't take the L. He'll just keep pushing through and slicing it up until this looks like something resembling a W. I think... I think I disagree a tiny bit in the final bit of your analysis, yeah, uh, hey. only to the point where I don't think this is entirely an issue of uh, Polyev's pride. I think this is more broadly an issue of arbitrage within the conservative party. And I think oh, there okay. was a yeah. fuck up. And yeah. I think, and I think rather than Polyev being like, I'm 
too egotistical to back off from it. I think it's more, I can't back off from this without throwing certain people under the bus. So we're kind of stuck with it. But to your main point, I agree with it fully. And when I saw your tweet, my immediate reaction was, please don't tweet. (laughs) But my second reaction was that your analysis was entirely correct, that the decision to vote against the free trade deal because it contained a carbon tax while voting on block against everything was a strategic error the conservatives made yeah. and and it and it was stupid they was made a stupid, a stupid mistake yeah. but then they then compounded it by instead of going ooh we should learn they were like well we're now stuck here and we're going to keep making it but yep. we're also going to like while we're going to keep making the same mistake but we're also going to send out like Garnet Genius uh, uh, and uh, Michael Chong, who are going to tweet incessantly for weeks about how much we love Ukraine and how yep. much we're standing with them here yep. because they were trying to find a way to your point to try and massage this back into the wind column or at least to mitigate the damage. What you wrote was a blistering criticism of the conservative conduct and leadership. Yes. But because you wrote it, in a way that suggested the original error was an accident, which it was, because I think it was a miscalculation. Yeah, I think it was. A lot of people interpreted that as you're going, oh, they didn't mean anything. And they are so wedded to their narrative, both of of what's happening with the conservatives, but also, frankly, their opinion of you. Yes. That they couldn't realize that you were, in fact, saying that the conservatives have fucked up twice here. The original fuck up and then the repeated doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. But but there's also nothing I can do about that, because if people are just deeply wedded to those partisan commitments, both of the party and of me, and those are two different things, obviously, there's nothing I'll ever say that will convince them that. That, that they're that they're not interpreting what I'm saying right. They're always going to take the bad faith interpretation or the, just the misunderstanding of what I'm saying in writing because they're they're committed to that ideological position and there's nothing I can do about it. And the funny thing is too, if they were willing to listen to your position, one of the things they might find was that there was actual like actionable, useful information here that a party could use against the conservatives. Absolutely. And but the inability of a certain group of people to break out of their group think on this issue is yeah. why they're going to lose. Yeah, absolutely. They Correct. they yeah. and I've been t- I had some interesting conversations this week with just friends in different places. It's a basic category error. When you cannot correctly understand what is happening, you will never be able to come up with a response to it. Oh, I want to talk mean, about I, said, I don't want to get into this deeply and get into my own sort of psychological damage on this shit, but um, this is the stuff that I noticed when I was when I was testifying a committee. I also these don't guys, want to do that. These 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 guys can't read any kind of dissent or disagreement in a good faith way. It's yeah. all a game to them. It's all gamified, right? It's just you're wearing the black hat. Your intention is this. This is what you mean. This is what you're what you're trying to do. You're just on the side of big tech. They've paid you off. They blah 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 blah. They, they simply cannot. But it, the problem is that if you are reading all disagreement and dissent in that way, your understanding of other people's motivations and outcomes is always going to be fatally flawed. And it's their Achilles heel. And you're right. It's it's why they're going to lose. They can't. And it's why they can't shift. It's why they can't. They'll never successfully pivot. It's why they're not going to successfully create a new narrative or calm strategy. It, it, they can't. They're they're path they're in, they're so locked into their bubble mindset now they can't they can't step away from it. They're so locked in, Jen, that even though you were disagree, you were criticizing Polyev and the conservatives. Yeah. they rejected it on the basis of it being not their criticism. That's right. Yeah, 
I want to talk about Polyev in the media, but I think you wanted to say a few words. You oh. wanted to follow up a bit on his comments on puberty blockers. Yeah, so I think so. this kind of goes to your comment about what you're going to talk about in the media. And I think you've got a column on this coming that I think is going to be Early really, next week. really good. Um, but actually a reporter, and I don't know who exactly pinned him to the wall on his position on puberty blockers. They were trying to get him on his, his to get him to respond to what was happening in Alberta. And finally, he, I think he just came out and said it. He said, I would ban puberty blockers for anybody over 18, which of course would defeat under, the under, sorry, under 18, which I think of course is pretty obviously defeats the purpose of puberty blockers. Puberty blockers are only really effective when they're administered sort of at a certain stage of puberty, which is much earlier than 18. Um, but they, they pushed him into holding an actual position. And I don't think that that changes our, what we've already written on the trans issues or anything else. And that is, you know, I don't really like that politicians are the, the, the people making these decisions. I think the doctors should be ones making these decisions, but I also would recognize that we are, that we're in a moment in civic society where I don't entirely trust the doctors to not be so ideologically captured that they're making bad decisions. I don't know that that's the case, but I, I have, I have concerns. I have trust issues here. Um, and so, you know, if politicians are the only ones left to tap the brakes, that leads us into the really bad place where we're making decisions by, by doc, really doctor medical decisions by, 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 by popularity, by political, by political will. And that's not, a good outcome. Um, so yeah, I mean, as I said, it's just an extension of what we would said had said previous previously. The other thing that I think I'm taking away from the Alberta situation that I'm kind of pondering, and I don't know if we really want to talk about this again, but I really wonder whether or not Danielle Smith and announcing her trans policies last week is the equivalent of a lamb walking into no man's land in 1941. I am really wondering whether or not she understands the the depth of antipathy that this the years long battle that she has just put herself right in the middle of and how intense that's going to be. I suspect she may think that this is just going to roll over in a week or two when the activists calm down. And I don't think that she understands the degree to which this is going to eat the next two to three years of her life in a highly intense way. I mean, I could be wrong. And if I am, I'll admit it, but I, I don't know that I am. And then the other thing I was thinking about is like, just the timing of the way and the way she did this is really weird. Like, why didn't she just, if she had concerns about hormone treatments for kids in, in Alberta, okay, start by launching a high quality inquiry. Start with an inquiry. Let's get, let's get like, you know, the details on the facts, you know, how many are being treated, how many, are, are being, are being, have surgery, how many, what are, what are the outcomes? What are the protocols? What are the follow-ups? Let's have expert testimony. Let's have an expert literature review. Let's have a fulsome report gathered. And then from that report, build your policies and responses, if any. Instead, it seems to me like she's almost doing everything totally weirdly ass backwards. Like here's an expansive suite of trans policies, some of which I can't even articulate clearly, but, and they'll come to the, to the floor and fall just in time for my leadership review. There's a weird sort of like Leroy Jenkinsing happening here. It's like trans policies, let's go. Um, and it's it doesn't read to me like a thought through political strategy necessarily, even though I think it's politically motivated. I don't think it's a well thought through political strategy. Can I be cheeky? Does that make sense? Can yeah. I be cheeky? Yeah. Best trans policy ever. 
<laughs> okay. Because there was no other way to do it? No, it's just best summer ever. Now it's best trans policy. Yeah. Oh, best it's, trans policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I like it. Have, have we really thought Again. this through? No. Is it going to blow up in our face? Maybe. Are we fully committed to it? Because it's great politics for us if it works. Yeah. 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 And to your point about the um, the sustained opposition to it, I don't know. You know Alberta better than I do. But I will say um, some of what you say is actually guaranteed. And, you know, if, if the premier and her advisors believe that the opposition to this will fade, they're right, because that's what happens. People get distracted, you know, like other issues come up, people move on. But this is legislation and it will have to go through a legislative process, which will mean a bill will be introduced and it will go through the Multiple legislature, bills. all yep. the enumerated steps. There'll be hearings, there'll be reviews, there'll be debates, there'll be second readings. Mm -hmm. And every one of those things will be a new renewed opportunity to begin mm -hmm. the protesting in it. Mm -hmm. So this is not something where you announce it, people get mad at you for a few weeks and then it goes away because right. it's been announced and people are going to be mad at you for a few weeks. And then eventually in the fall, it's going to be introduced and people are going to be mad at you for a few weeks again. And this is going to be controversial from announcement to it eventually passing. It's the, next, it's the next two years of her life. And also I just think she's failed to articulate uh, a logic for being here in the first place. Can you like, also- Why are we here? Why are we here? I ask myself that every day in a, in a much broader context. Tell me, though, there was something because I don't want to get eaten up by this, but just as some of the fallout of it, you were telling me that so, yeah, this some is of the narratives that, that, already are changing around surgeries. Yeah, I mean, this, this is something that just really annoyed me. And it just it just annoyed me on a really personal level. And that was all last week when we were talking about these uh, announcements, which include like a ban on gender affirming surgeries under age 17. One of the things that we were consistently told by doctors, by the Alberta Medical Association, and by everybody repeating their talking points is, why are you doing this? These surgeries aren't happening. These surgeries don't happen. And I remember clipping a specific quote from the very doctor I quoted in our last dispatch saying, you know, bottom surgeries, they aren't happening at all for minors. And, you know, top surgeries, realistically, no, nobody's getting top surgeries under, under 17. That's not happening. Like it's three to five year wait list. What are you talking about? So the implication being there's really no need for a policy for something that isn't actually happening. The side note is that there's no reason against a policy for something that's not actually happening, but whatever. You can take then, that which so, one, whichever way you want to fight that one. Yeah, whichever way you want to fight one, it's great. Tyler Dawson actually starts to press AHS and says, well, how well, how many surgeries, is this true? Or, or how many surgeries are happening? Um, and AHS gets back to him with this like kind of document that says, well, there are about 25 pediatric chest surgeries per year. But of course, Ostrich. those, yeah. yeah, well, except no, because that can include everything from like cancer surgery to uh, gynecomastoid, I'm mispronouncing it, but it's the it's the condition from, for, for boys where they develop breasts right. and they need to have the breasts re reduced because they're, they're, they're men, they're natal men who present as men and they want to have normal size, normal size male chests um and uh, but basically the um uh the 25 data didn't break out gender affirming surgeries it didn't it didn't break those things out like how many of these are are double mastectomies by minor natal females who are transitioning to male that's what we're asking for well it didn't break them out 
Well, Tyler, to his credit from the National Post, I give him full credit for this, started to push them further. He pushed them. He's like, no, 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 give me, give me the number. Well, it turns out it's eight. Now, eight is not a huge number. That's that that's in a province of four million, that is astonishingly uncommon. It's very, very rare. But it's not zero, right? Now I'm gonna put a caveat on this is that it's not hundred percent clear to me that gender affirming surgeries aren't being used to include sort of gyno the the reduction of male braille dress tissue in in boys which i don't think are the same thing as gender as double mastectomies and i think that that is it, to class that as a gender affirming surgery that we're we're clearly talking about different things here um i have no problems with you know a, a 14 year old boy with extremely large chest getting his chest reduced to a normal size I don't, you know, you, you might technically call that a gender affirming surgery. And to me, I would respond to that by saying, well, this is the problem with using euphemistic Orwellian language like gender affirming surgery, because it conflates what we're actually trying, trying to discuss here. We're talking about double mastectomies. And my understanding and Tyler's understanding is that those eight refer to double mastectomies. Okay. Um, so if it comes out that that eight refers to the other thing, I, I will retract this and and openly and apologetically. I'm putting a caveat in there for 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 uncertainty here. Um, but if those eight refer to gender to double mastectomies of natal females who are having healthy breast breast tissue removed in order to transition to male, that means that the Alberta Medical Association and multiple doctors who were talking to us all last week were lying to us. This is happening, and this is the thing that I, I as a journalist, get really angry about because I'm like. If you want to argue that double mastectomies for minors are good on their own merits, A, you shouldn't need euphemistic language like gender affirming surgery. Just call them double mastectomies. You shouldn't, we shouldn't need to relabel medical procedures in this way. That's Orwellian. Secondly, argue for them for, for the value of these things on their own merits. Cool, fine, fill your boots. But don't fucking lie to me. Don't lie. We, if we're going to have a conversation about this stuff, we need to be having these conversations from a shared set of facts. And if there are eight um, double mastectomies on females, natal females, happening every year in Alberta, we need to be able to build a policy or an understanding or a shared conversation based on that understanding and that fact. You can't just lie and say, well, this isn't happening and make the problem go away. I mean, this is and this to me is why I start to lose faith in the entire medical institution that's making these claims. Because if they're lying to me then about this, then what are aren't what else aren't they lying to me about? What shared facts can't we be can't we be trusting on this stuff? Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's my own personal little rant on that. I don't know if we really want to get into this because we talked about trans issues at length um last week on, on Alberta, and that's fine. Um but I just I don't I don't like feeling like I've been lied to either willfully or unwittingly misled about what exactly is happening. I, I to me that completely breaks my trust in these in the in the professions that I need to be able to trust to make decisions about my life. And I I just I get really angry about it. I get irrationally angry about it. I want to uh loop it back to because we 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 got to that place uh by talking about polyev and talking about the puberty blockers and the comments mm -hmm. he'd made mm -hmm. and you had said that that was going to lead us to my next comment i am writing a column on this it'll be ready next week i don't want to blow my whole thesis yet okay but you and i in our dispatches and on our podcasts have more than once criticize the Ottawa Press Gallery and beyond that, the media across this country generally, sometimes specifically by name in the in cases of reporters who have 
completely fucked up interviewing Pierre Polyev. And we come at this from the position that Pierre Polyev is not dealing with the media in good faith. His position is not, it is part of my duty as an elected uh, member of the House and a, and a would-be prime minister to answer uh, media questions on matters of public concern. He views engagement with the media as an opportunity to get clips to be cut for social media as part of a vote voter mobilization and fundraising effort. That's right. And that's fine. But I think there has been a refusal to acknowledge this, to be honest about it, and for our media colleagues in some cases to adapt to it. And you and I have said more than once that Pierre Polyev is pursuing a strategy of deliberate confrontation with the mm -hmm. media. And again, part of that is voter mobilization. Part of it is fundraising. I think part of it is also a strategic defense because if he has a combative adversarial relationship with the media from the beginning, he, he builds himself in a degree of... They're just out to get me. This isn't legitimate criticism. They're just out to get me. I mean, he did, that, later, he did that literally this week. He said the Toronto Star is going to write a hit piece um, against the fact that I bought a $300 above ground pool from Walmart. Yep. And I noticed there doesn't seem to be any Toronto Star story. So maybe, maybe, maybe he was right. right. I mean, yep. on a strategic level, if you establish from the outset a completely adversarial relationship with the media, at least to your most credulous followers, you can explain away legitimate failures of judgment and policy uh, okay. should he become prime minister. That's right. So that's my meta comment on this. But I noticed something else. I don't often watch the live press scrums in Ottawa, they make me sad. I usually will read transcripts or I will watch the uh, replays of them later. But I did happen to catch a bit of a press conference on Friday. No, it was not on Friday. Today is Friday. It was earlier in the week. And I heard and I recognized her voice because she's good enough to come on my radio show, Stephanie Levitz of the Toronto Star, ask him a question perfectly. She did a perfect job. It, and I'm I'm going to write a full column about this, and I'll, I'll look for some other examples as well. But she did not go in and ask him some big, airy, amorphous blob of a philosophically meandering position statement, followed eventually by some kind of a gotcha question. She went up to him and she said, polls show support for Ukraine dropping, particularly among conservative voters. What would you say to those voters about why we must support Ukraine? A simple, clear, specific question without rhetorical embellishments. And do you want to know what happened? What? He answered. Mm -hmm. He answered the question. And it was a brief answer. And his answer was completely palatable and acceptable. He basically said... Canada must do its part to support Ukraine because if we don't, dictators around the world will be emboldened to threaten democracies. Is it a particularly original, thoughtful, or revolutionary answer? No, but it's a legitimate answer. And then, of course, what he did, because Pierre Polyev is well-trained, is then he immediately moved from that to doing what he wanted to be doing, which was attacking the Justin Trudeau record. Who gives a shit? That's what he's going to do. But Levitz asked a clear, specific question, and she refused the temptation to load it up with rhetorical embellishments, and she got a sincere, legitimate, if brief, answer from Pierre Polyev. I call that a win. And it was later on in the press conference that, like, a gaggle of reporters basically hounded him into making an actual statement on puberty blockers. Polyev's strategy 
is deliberate confrontation. And the sooner our media colleagues listen to Stephanie Levitz and start asking questions the way that she asked that question, the better off they will do. Yeah, and I, I think, think just, I think you just blew your thesis. Eh, oh, <laughs> well, not everyone reads the podcast. People will read it in a call. Yeah, um, not everyone listens to the podcast. That is how you interview someone who has a strategy of deliberate confrontation. You don't amp it up. You don't play into it. You don't lean into it. You ignore it. You treat them like a tantruming toddler. And you're like, okay, yeah, I know. I know you don't like Justin Trudeau, but what would you like your snack to be? An apple or an orange? And he goes, I hate Justin Trudeau on his record. An apple. And you give him his apple. You have to stop whipping it up. You have got to just ask him plain, simple questions. I encourage everyone to start doing as she's doing. And yes, that is my column. You want to speaking of media, I think talk uh bell yeah, I, you know? I, let's talk let's talk a little bit about the bc layoffs i mean I, our First audience of all, always... one thing though very important yes. very important okay like and subscribe like and subscribe like and subscribe like okay so the other thing we want to check with the bce layoffs matt i know that our audience has very mixed feelings on us when we start talking about the journalisms mm. so the journalisming the journaliseming the journaliseming is a meta prospect journalization journalization journalismization there, there we go but but there have been from some pretty significant uh layoffs matt could you please tell us how the gesture Trudeau plan to save the mainstream media is going not great um i have concerns yeah look i mean one thing it's important to note is that not every one of these stations that was being shut down was specifically news focused i think some of them were music or entertainment content mm -hmm. things like that and not every um among uh, almost 5,000 job cuts by Bell Media, that was across the or uh, across, probably across Bell. Not all of them were in Bell Media. Those were organization-wide cuts. But still, the net effect of these cuts is that uh, 45 radio stations have been uh, di divested by Bell and purchased by other companies. And I don't know what they're going to do with them. Hey, maybe some of them are going to dump money into it and revolutionize local reporting. I bet a bunch of them are going to turn them into repeater stations for some music feed out of a computer in Toronto. We'll mm -hmm. see. That's going to be up to them. Uh, but there have been a series of cuts uh, at CTV News, including the flagship news program, W5. It's gone. It The brand is going to continue, but it will now provide content for other CTV platforms and, and assets. So... You and I wrote specifically about Bell Media in a dispatch a while ago, and we made a, a statement that was noted at the time and circulated among some of our colleagues, and our statement has been further confirmed. And I will go dig up the actual dispatch, so I'll be able to quote chapter and verse on this, but what we said years ago was that it is obvious to us that Bell is making a phased withdrawal from the news business. Sure. And uh, they're doing it on radio and TV simultaneously. And the reason we had written about this, and this is where I, I do have to put a disclosure in, I am still a paid contributor to Bell Media on some of their news assets. Uh, one of those assets where I am a paid contributor is CFRB 1010, News Talk 1010 in Toronto, an AM radio station. Dial in. Bell eliminated the newsroom there and basically said from now on 1010, this is a few years ago now, 1010 would rely on CP24, which is a 24-hour day news channel in Toronto, and CFTO Toronto, which is the local CTV, uh, CTV affiliate uh, on cable. 
So the Bell used to have three separate newsrooms, CFTO, CP24, and News Talk 1010. And it nuked News Talk 1010's newsroom and said, from now on, you'll be relying on the audio files of our TV journalists. And then, of course, since then, there have been further cuts. We wrote at the time that when Bell wiped out the News Talk 1010 newsroom and also a similar newsroom in Montreal at CJAD 800, that was more than just another round of job cuts. That was a signal. Radio journalism is, relatively speaking, cheap. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's not valuable. I'm it's saying just, just it inexpensive is inexpensive to produce compared to television journalism and other forms of journalism. Yeah. yeah, it is. Radio is still, in terms of mass distribution, very efficient at bang for buck. And if Bell is getting out of radio journalism, we said this years ago, in Toronto and Montreal, the writing is on the wall for everybody else. Oh, yeah. You can't make it work in Toronto and Montreal. Yeah, good luck in Lloydminster and Medicine Hat. Like, it's just, it ain't. And that's the latest round of cuts includes the end of entire news broadcasts on weekends and I think in some evenings. I'd have to go look at the details in any markets other than like Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. And in some cases, only Toronto. Mm -hmm. And there was another story uh, that I, I wanted to talk about. I think we mentioned it in a dispatch, but I don't think I ever wrote the column on it I wanted to. A number of months ago, there was a really unfortunate situation in Toronto where a, a disturbed individual inside of a home uh, was firing on police officers who had been sent to do a wellness check. And the Toronto police were like frantically, this was like a Sunday night, and the Toronto police were frantically tweeting like shelter in place, stay at home orders, because a psycho with a rifle was taking pot shots at people. And I was watching the local news channels and the internet news at all the local stations and channels, and no one picked up the story and for hours and hours and hours. Because the dirty little secret is even in Toronto, a media market of 8 million people with multiple private and public news organizations, no one's on staff on Sunday nights. You might have an overnight CBC cameraman and maybe an overnight CP photographer. And eventually, the overnight editors, who were probably working from home and had their cell phone ring or something, put up a story saying, police have tweeted that a man is shooting. It wasn't like a reporter on the scene. The, the media is gone, even in Toronto. And yep. what I find fascinating about this, and I, I've been looking at angry reactions on Thursday by David Eby. The, uh, is it Eby or Eby? Eby? Uh, Ebby, whatever. The premier of BC. Someone, writers, someone will tell me in the be comments. Expected. We can't expect to be expected to pronounce people's names correctly. Come on now. Someone well, in the comments, just tell me. Um, and also Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whatever his name is. This um, Pierre Polyev guy? Polyev? Paul Ever. Trudeau on Paul Friday. Ever. We're going to call, call him Paul Ever from now Paul on. Paul Ever. On Friday, Trudeau at a press conference with Doug Ford announcing some new health care deal was like, I'm pissed off at Bell. I, ah! And the, the BC Premier and the Prime Minister, they've got their sound, their, their sound bites now. They've got their clips. I don't give a shit that they're angry. I like I'm heartbroken because I know some like I have already spoken to people I know personally who are not out of a job and I'm not confident they're ever getting another, at least not in the field. But I'm not in a place of being emotionally upset or angry about it because I saw it coming years ago, and Bell is acting rationally. It you can you can criticize the decision, you can be angry at it. We you want to talk about regulatory issues in a minute, which I think is fair. But what I'm trying to tell people 
is that you cannot count on the future of journalism in this country being funded by corporate philanthropy. And Bell, which is a massive telecom company, is making a business decision to pull out of a of a news of a, of a division of a work division that it is not making money in. Yeah, but okay, you make the does, argument. I'll make my counter argument in a minute, but you take over. How does Bell make its money? Regulatory I mean, capture. Yeah, it it this is Bell's not an unprofitable company. Last I think we checked, what was it pulling in what ten billion in profit, something like that, or am I complaining? Billions with Rogers, billions, billions and billions in profit. And part of the reason why Rogers, Bell, all of these major telecoms make that kind of money is because they have control over the government, essentially their lobbyists have so much control over the government apparatus and the regulatory system that American companies, other types of companies simply can't compete in this space. So like we would have, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know that I'm going to get a bunch of like telco uh, self-interested telco nuts in our, in, our, in, our, in our comment section now, but we would have cheaper internet, cheaper cell phone services, cheaper everything, if these companies were not able to absolutely juice the Canadian consumer using their their utterly their utter stranglehold on the Canadian market, which is enforced through regulatory capture. Okay? So if they're going to be generating huge amounts of profits through regulatory capture, I don't think it's unreasonable to demand, in lieu of additional taxation, for example, that they devote some of those resources to bread and butter public good journalism. I, I don't think it's reasonable. And in fact, some degree of Canadian content, Canadian journalism is in fact mandated as part of the broadcast licenses by that they use to bilk the Canadian consumer. So I, I'm not convinced that this is just as simple as, well, the news organizations don't make money, so therefore this is just a business decision because the way that they make money isn't a purely we're not they don't exist in a purely capitalistic free market enterprise this isn't a free market situation they don't operate in a free market situation they operate in a crony capitalism kind of situation and i don't think it's unreasonable given that reality to demand that they devote some of their profits to the public good i agree with every word you just said every word of it i agree with the okay. problem is i didn't say that bell was acting honorably i said they were acting rationally and the other part of the rational call that they are making is that their lobbyists will outgun the media's lobbyists and that they will get away with it, that they will make this cut and the prime minister will be, tell everyone how pissed off he is and premiers will line up and say the same. And Bell will be, yeah, they'll, they'll be mocked for a couple of days, but probably next week they'll announce some like great new deal, say five bucks a month on your five TV package. Bell, let's talk which was a few weeks ago, which is why they fired everybody this week. Um, I'm not saying they're acting honorably. I'm saying they're acting rationally. So and part nice of their rational, I... part of their rational action is going to be amassing their army of lobbyists and pushing to see exactly how deep they can cut an unprofitable division before the feds in their regulatory role yeah. actually step up and before they before they said you're in violation of your broadcasting license and so, then I mean, do just, something about it which just yeah and to do something about it, which just makes it clear once again that like c18 was a years-long debacle that wound up with us with wound up with the with the canadian media industry worse off than it was before financially even after google pitched in a hundred million dollars and mm -hmm. managed to get get us all booted off of facebook 
when all the federal government had to do in order to address the concerns with the failure and 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 the financial failure of legacy media was to enforce the enforce and bolster the restrictions that uh, we already have a mechanism for through the Broadcasting Act and through the um, uh, distribution of Broadcasting Act licenses. But they won't do it because that would involve them actually going to, to and standing up to lobbyists and dealing with the regulatory capture that this that this country actually deals with. And it was just much easier to make a new law and force Google to pay money. Because this country sucks. Bell, Rogers, I don't think Telus owns any media properties that I can recall. Um, Bell and Rogers being big ones, though. Who owns Chorus now? Chorus is actually independent. Chorus oh, used okay? to be linked Fair to enough. Shaw, but Chorus got spun out okay. to be independent. And they, they are, they're hemorrhaging money. They're, they're a mess. Yeah. Um, all of these companies, in a rational but not honorable way, are going to cut over and over. And they're going to wait to see if there's a federal response. And if the federal response is confined to the prime minister telling everyone how pissed off he is, they'll do it again. They'll do it, they'll do it again. And right. so we'll see. But I know I know exactly what they're doing. And I do not think that the prime minister or this liberal party at this time, at least uh, uh, to date, they have shown no real willingness to flex their regulatory muscle here because the telcos have more lobbying firepower than the media. It's to and fundamentally, it's yeah, and it's to fundamentally misunderstand who actually controls, who is actually has the power in Canadian politics. It's like it's I know this is a, a, a joke that I consistently make to people who don't really seem to understand this, who seem to think that like it's the gun lobby that holds the power in Canadian in in Canadian uh, uh, political oh, life because they're because they're projecting the power they imagine the NRA holds right in the American context. It's like no, no, the most powerful lobby in Canada is the dairy cartel. Followed by the telcos, followed, followed by, the by the telcos, stores. followed by the grocery stores. Yep. So like, this is, this is actually the hierarchy of power here. We can't, you can't, you can't piss these people off. All right, Matt, do you want to talk briefly about Bellevue or? Belleville. Belleville. I do. Oh, Bellevue. Yeah. Jesus. That was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? We're all mad now. Uh, Belleville. So Belleville, and I'm not an expert on this. I think I might have to pop out there and eyeball it myself. Um, Nice town, nice city. It's uh, it's off the 401, about 50,000 people, if I remember, roughly equally distant between Toronto and Ottawa. And my understanding from friends I have who live there is that for a couple of years, there has been uh, a sudden boom in the homeless population from effectively zero up to a few hundred uh, clustered in and around downtown. And earlier this week, there must have been a, uh, a tainted batch of drugs because there was a spike in overdose resulting in, I think, about 20 hospitalizations and uh, at this time, to my best knowledge, one death. And that is all I have to say about Belleville in particular, because I'm not fully read up on this. But I was looking at the reaction and I saw the usual uh, bevy of politicians talking about task forces and multi-jurisdictional plans and wraparound supports. And I'd heard it all before. And Something else in my brain, and you know how frightening it is when two thoughts could collide in my brain. It doesn't happen often. I began thinking about the task force that was recently announced and has been heavily promoted since on auto theft. And it occurred to me that these are both issues that are common, opioid addiction and, and negative consequences thereof, both on users, but also surrounding communities where quality of life is impacted by visible drug use, petty crime, violent crime, discarded needles, things like that. 
and also auto theft, which, first of all, is fucking annoying if your car gets stolen. One of my best friends had his car stolen last year. Uh, but also, we all pay a collective price for that through insurance premiums that keep going up and up and up. Plus, just the the broader distributed feeling of your neighborhood not being safe when you hear that Jim down the street had his his Jeep stolen from his driveway. And then he's asking you, or the cops, this has happened. Cops have knocked on my door to ask if they can look at my security camera footage. Just remember, Matt, that car theft is a victimless crime, according to some people in Canadian media. So the conservatives began to get some traction on it. Uh, the liberals have now announced this task force. And it's a really interesting issue to me because we actually all know what the problem is with auto theft in particular in this country, which is that the Port of Montreal is just a, a, a mass of corruption. And the cars are just easily shipped overseas in shipping containers. And no one, for all kinds of reasons, uh, wants to poke the hornet's nest by cleaning out the organized crime rings that operate in the Port of Montreal. Don't, and to a lesser extent in Vancouver and Halifax as well. And also don't rule out the, the keyless entry debacle. Like apparently all of our cars now are absurdly easy to steal because Correct. of our keyless entry systems, which yep. we'll never get rid of because they're so convenient. I would happily go back to a key, but whatever. Um, so yeah, all, all of this stuff... And you and I have often spoken on the show of the Canadian input-output problem, which is that Canadian politicians will respond to every crisis, every serious situation, and every uh, genuine source of public anger and dissatisfaction with a slew of input initiatives, press conferences, task forces, multi-jurisdictional panels, um, uh, rib blue ribbon commissions, um, multi-institutional working groups and press conferences so many press conferences all of which will be clipped and shared across every social platform indefinitely that will take the heat off the politicians in the short term right because they'll be able to go hey my car got stolen well hey our government's already pledged three million dollars over the next 12 months to add more x-ray scanners at the ports or yeah well okay no but did you know that we now have a working group set up between provincial police and municipal officials as part of a new anti-organized crime task force and uh, you'll you hear very similar things about overdose deaths and the other uh social ills surrounding drug use the problem of course is that we're going to have a bunch of press conferences about the opioid situation in Belleville and the new anti-car theft task force, which ain't going to do shit to clean up Belleville. And it's not going to prevent my neighbor's new Land Rover from getting stolen. I don't think we pay enough attention to this country to the radicalizing effect of having governments talk at length about all of the things they are doing to fix a problem that is palpably and visibly deteriorating in full public view. And the short-term incentive... Do not the, listen to the evidence of your eyes. You don't... You know what? Even if the evidence is wrong, it if people feel less safe and the politician is telling them about the new multi-jurisdictional task force, that politician's going to lose. And the politician who shows up and goes, I'm going to do simplistic solution X, is going to win. And I think we're in a, in a stage where a large number of Canadians uh, who do not wish to see Pierre Polyev win the next election have convinced themselves that he's going to win by crook or by hook, where if he whips up enough anger about bullshit issues and proposes a bunch of nonsense solutions combined with, you know, 
Russian support and a vast right-wing conspiracy, he's going to win. And it never seems to occur to them that what's actually killing them is never-ending press conferences about fixing a problem that doesn't get fixed. And even if the problems aren't easily fixed, have some humility. Be honest. Just say, we, we don't have a solution to this, but we're going to work on it and we're going to try and come up with some solutions. We're going to do a listening tour. Instead, what you get is you get pointed. And I, I, I had a friend in my neighborhood whose uh, neighbor's car got stolen, who contacted the local MP and the MP never got in touch. But apparently there was some like response from a staffer please see our previous statement. And the statement was boilerplate. It was, we remain committed to tackling organized crime, which is why our government has announced blah, blah, blah. And I know this sounds like a side issue, but I had Jacques Gallant of the Toronto Star, uh, one of their courts reporters. He was on my radio show with me this week. He was telling me about a case where a woman had accused an associate of raping her. And there had been procedural delays with the trial, but eventually it got to a trial and a jury of 12 convicted the man of rape. And that is when the judge tossed the case due to procedural delays. And I was livid when I heard that story. And then this week, this week, a human trafficking case in Toronto was tossed due to procedural delays. Because we can't get, because we, because we're like, we're dozens of judges short in Ontario and these are federal appointments, but we're going to have someone out there who's going to come up with a chart that shows me, well, actually auto theft was worse under Stephen Harper, or they're going to reply with some complete non sequitur, which is, hey, this case just got thrown out of court and my neighbor's car got stolen and my kid's playground has a bunch of needles in it. And they'll be like, yeah, but have you looked at like how our GDP per capita is performing against the rest of the G7? Also, if you're complaining about needles and playgrounds, we know you just want addicts to die on mass. So I, I think it will only become clear to certain people in hindsight why they're about to get their asses kicked. And when I see very intelligent people picking the individual stats to tell how to tell Canadians how amazing things are going, when Canadians are like, but why is the Belleville police chief telling everyone to stay out of downtown because the roads are so crowded with emergency vehicles now evacuating the dozens of simultaneous overdoses that we can't get ambulances in and out. But then someone is going to come along with like a listicle showing that Canada's brand is tops. And then you look at the stats for the listicle and it's actually just a survey of like 2000 people around the world of what countries do you think are good? And Canada comes out on top and it's like, well, I'm sorry that your, your kid's playground is full of needles. And I'm sorry that your car got stolen. And I'm sorry that you don't have a family doctor and that your cousin was raped by a coworker and the police botched the case and then it couldn't be heard in court anyway. And I'm sorry that you can't afford your home because interest rates went up and that food costs a fortune. But I have a listicle for you. Don't you know how good it is here compared to everywhere else? Um, You should go to Belleville. Yeah. You should go. Uh, you're closer than I am or I'd go. Yeah. On that note, I have to go pick up my son. Yeah. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Thanks, everybody. Like and subscribe and we'll send Matt to Belleville as part of our Make Matt Suffer series. But only if you like and subscribe. Thank you, everybody. Love you.